Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, you can grab a Bible, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 986. 986. And while you're finding your place, I was watching football a little bit yesterday as the playoffs are in full swing. And as I was watching, I had a thought. You know, there, are, there are a lot of different kinds of frustrating plays in sports. You may think of a, a batter who strikes out looking uh, instead of swinging the bat. Or you may think of a basketball player who misses two free throws in a row. Uh, or perhaps a, a hockey player who misses a, a shot on an open goal. But I have to say that, uh, among other things, one of the most frustrating plays in sports has to be when a wide receiver drops a ball that is right in his hands. Right? It's just so frustrating. There is so much that has to go into a football play working that when the quarterback puts it on you, you have to catch the ball. And, and there's, there's just few things that are more frustrating in sports than watching uh, a guy catch the ball only uh, to drop it. Well, the same thing is true for us spiritually as well. This morning, as, as we continue in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be reminded of the importance of receiving God's word whenever we have the opportunity. And so we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to pick up again in verse 13. Paul writes, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so as we move into verse 13, Paul once again expresses his consistent thanksgiving to God for these new believers in Thessalonica. If you remember back to the beginning of chapter 1, we saw that Paul began this letter by, by telling the Thessalonians how much he thanked God for them and for their response to the gospel. But here in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul not only re-emphasizes that, but he goes a little bit deeper, and he reveals what led to their response to the gospel. He says that when they received the word of God, they accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And so the reason that the Thessalonians became characterized by faith and love and hope, right? the reason that they turned from idols to serve the one true God is because when they heard Paul's preaching, they recognized it as the word of God and they embraced it. And so as I mentioned a few weeks ago, Thessalonica was a, a major metropolitan city that was full of all kinds of, of different philosophical and, and religious systems and ideas. Right, so over the course of their lives, the Thessalonians had pretty much seen and heard it all. And yet, as they encountered Paul talking about Jesus and how he died on the cross as a sacrifice for sin and how they could be reconciled to God and forgiven of their sin by placing their faith in what Jesus had done for them, by repenting 
of their sin, they recognized that this was something different. Right? This was, was, was teaching that was true in a way that nothing else out there was. And that the only explanation for that is that God must be the, the source, the author of this teaching. And so they believed. So the, the Thessalonians embraced the word of God, which primarily refers to the gospel message, but it also includes all scriptural teaching that Paul gave them. And now we see at the end of verse 13 that God's word is continuing to be at work in them. And so we're, we're reminded here that the word of God is effectual, right? It accomplishes things. It does things. It makes things happen. And so we know from the very beginning that God created this world and everything that exists. How? By speaking it into existence. Right? The author of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and active. That it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And the Holy Spirit uses God's word to regenerate our hearts when we first come to faith in Jesus, And then he continues to use it to conform and transform us into the people that God calls us to be little by little over the, the course of our lives. Right? God's word is powerful. And the Lord declares through the prophet Isaiah that it always accomplishes the purpose that he has for it. And so Paul consistently thanks God for the work that his word has done among this new church as they have received it. And then just as he did back in chapter 1, Paul is going to explain how he knows that the Thessalonians have received the word of God properly as he contrasts them with those who have rejected the word as we move into verse 14. So in verse 14 we read, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. And so as we continue into verse 14, Paul reveals what gave him confidence that the Thessalonians had truly received the word of God. And that is the fact that they were willing to suffer persecution for their new faith. And so last week we saw that, that the only explanation for how Paul was able to endure so much hardship in his ministry was that he genuinely believed the message that he proclaimed. Right? Otherwise he would have given up a long time ago and, and gone to do something else. But in the same way, uh, we, the genuineness of the Thessalonians' faith was made clear when they showed that they were willing to suffer for the gospel as well. Paul says that they became imitators of the churches in Judea, which is referring to, to the church in Jerusalem and in the, the areas surrounding Jerusalem. Right? And so we well remember from our, our study through Acts that the early church endured difficulty from the very beginning. That is, as the Jews who did not embrace the gospel persecuted those who did. Right? And in that way, the, the churches in Judea became, became an example of being willing to suffer for the faith. And now the Thessalonians are imitating. They are 
following their example as others who have rejected God's word in their area persecute them. So again, we we read in Acts chapter 17 that the Jews initially stirred up opposition to Paul and his team as they were in Thessalonica preaching the gospel. And eventually they ran them out of town. But no doubt, even once Paul and, and his team were gone, as this little church continued to operate within the city, these new believers experienced ongoing persecution for their faith. It may have been social in nature. Perhaps they lost friends or were disowned by family members. Or perhaps some of them who were more, uh, had a higher social standing in the city were canceled, to, to use modern terminology. It may have been financial in nature. They may have been subjected to fines. Or perhaps people stopped utilizing their businesses or prevented them from working uh, at their jobs. Or, like Paul and Silas, it may have even been physical. Perhaps the Thessalonian church was attacked. Perhaps some of them were even thrown into prison. Whatever it was, once the Thessalonians decided to follow Jesus, life was not as easy as it used to be. You can tell that to the prosperity preachers. But they held firm in their faith, which revealed that they had truly received the word of God. Now, in verse 15, Paul continues down this track of of tracing the unbelief of the Jewish people as a whole. And he brings out five characteristics of the people in general. He says that they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. He said that they persecuted Paul and his team, that they displeased God, and that they oppose all of mankind. Now, of course, this isn't referring to all Jews across the board. Because, again, as we saw in Acts... Thousands and thousands of Jews did come to faith in Jesus. And in fact, the early church was completely Jewish in the, in the early years, for the first several years. And make no mistake, uh, Paul loves his people. All right? he, he, he goes as far uh, to, uh, to say in, in the letter to Romans that, that he could wish that he was condemned and separated from God if it meant that the rest of his people could be saved in exchange. Right? And so uh, Paul loves his people, but, but he is also frequently frustrated by the fact that they, of all people, rejected the gospel that had been promised to them for centuries. Because as, as a whole, the Jewish people did reject Jesus, which in turn frequently brought them into conflict with Paul's ministry. And in these last two verses of the passage, Paul places this large-scale rejection and opposition to the gospel in perspective of the Jews' resistance to God over the whole course of their history. It's what we see in verse 15 is that this is not a new thing. This stubbornness goes back to the very beginning. Paul points out most recently that they killed the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. They were against him. They handed him over to the Romans and demanded his death on a cross. But even before that, Paul refers to the fact that they killed the prophets. And as we've seen, from the earliest times as a nation, the Jews rebelled against the Lord. But because the Lord is faithful to his people, he was consistent in sending them prophets who confronted them and who called them to repent and turn from their sin and to be faithful to the Lord. And yet not only did the people reject the prophets, they, also, they often put them to death. And so this stubbornness, again, is nothing new. It has roots 
that go back for centuries. But not only have, have they rejected Jesus for themselves, in the second half of verse 15 through verse 16, Paul says that, that the Jews displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering him from speaking to the Gentiles so at least the Gentiles can be saved. And not only do they not want to believe in Jesus, the Jews don't want anybody to believe in Jesus. And so they, they consistently oppose Paul. They did everything they could to sabotage his ministry. And if that didn't work, they did everything they could to assassinate him. And then in the middle of verse 16, Paul reveals a deeper reality that is at play in the Jewish opposition to God and to his word. And he says that they do this so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. And, and this statement picks up on a concept that is actually found somewhat consistently throughout the Bible, which is the, the concept that God has a set amount of rebellion that he is prepared to tolerate before he executes judgment for sin. And God has a, a specific amount of rebellion that he will allow before he executes judgment. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 15, as God shows Abram the promised land, and he promises that he's going to give this land to him and to his descendants, he tells them that he's not giving it to him just yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, the Israelites taking the promised land was, among other things, an act of divine judgment against the people who were living there to begin with. And yet... Uh, the, the people were not yet to a point in their sin where God was prepared to execute that judgment. At the end of the, the Bible, in Revelation chapter 6, John sees a vision of God's throne, and it's surrounded by, by the, the host of martyrs who have been killed for their faith over the course of history. And the martyrs call out to God, and they ask how long it will be before he vindicates them, and he executes judgment over the nations. And the Lord tells them to hold on until the full number of their brothers is complete. In other words, God has determined there to be a set number of martyrs for the faith before he brings all things to an end. And we find similar statements to this in Daniel chapter 8 and in Matthew chapter 23. God has a fixed amount of rebellion that he will tolerate before he executes judgment. And Paul indicates here that the unbelieving Jews are in the process of getting to that point. But then at the very end of verse 16, Paul seems to indicate that that time of judgment is already at hand. He writes, but wrath has come upon them at last. And while it's not directly stated, we understand that wrath to be God's wrath and his judgment against sin. And the final phrase, at last, uh, is somewhat ambiguous. It could also be translated as completely uh, or forever. And as is normally the case when we come to an ambiguous statement, there are a, a wide variety of interpretations of, of possibilities of what Paul is saying here. And so we notice that Paul uses the past tense. He indicates that this wrath has already come and so there are various events from the first century, the early part of the first century, that, that various uh, commentators and scholars have pointed to as potential acts of God's judgment against the Jews. And so some people think that this is referring uh, to the famine in the region of Judea that we read about in Acts chapter 15. 
Some people believe that it's referring to the Emperor Claudius expelling all of the Jews from Rome, which we read about in Acts chapter 18. Uh, Some people believe it's referring to a massacre that took place in Jerusalem during Passover celebrations in AD 49, which is something that's not recorded in the New Testament. And then some people believe that Paul is referring to all of these things, right? The fact that all of these things are happening is an indication that God is judging the Jews for their rejection of Jesus and their opposition to the gospel. On the other hand, some people believe that Paul is using here what we've seen before as the prophetic past tense, which refers to the fact that when God has determined to do something, in a very real sense, it's as good as done already. And so from from that angle, they would suggest that, that Paul is portraying a future judgment of God as having already happened simply in order to communicate the certainty of it. And from that perspective, Paul could be anticipating the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 when the Romans completely destroyed the city and and put an end to Judaism essentially as it was established in the Old Testament. There there is no longer a temple, which means there is no longer a priesthood, which means there are no longer sacrifices because salvation has been brought through Jesus and Jesus alone. And so from that angle, the destruction of Jerusalem could be a a clear example of God's judgment that made it clear uh, that he was finished with Judaism as a a system because, again, salvation is only through faith in Jesus. Or Paul could also simply be pointing forward to Judgment Day uh, when God brings judgment on everyone who has rejected the Messiah. And so there are a number of different ideas of what this means, and those are really just the most popular options. Now, ultimately, I don't think it's really possible for us to know specifically what Paul is referring to in in this particular instance. Is this a past act of judgment? Is it referring to future judgment? Is it both? Uh, At the end of the day, I don't think that we can know with certainty. But regardless of what Paul had in mind, what we can know for certain, what we do know for sure, is that he is emphasizing the fact that rejecting and opposing God's word brings dire consequences. It is no light thing to reject God's word. Right? And so we know that every one of us has rebelled against God, and that collectively we have made a mess out of his world, and that he is going to hold each one of us individually accountable. And we know that there is no salvation outside of Christ, and so to reject and to oppose the gospel message can do nothing except bring us under the judgment of God. And so whatever Paul meant for the people in his day specifically, we should take heed this morning to what we know it means for us today. Because in in our passage this morning, Paul is reminding us of the importance of receiving God's word and the danger of rejecting it. As he contrasts the Thessalonians with the Jews and the unbelieving world around them. We are reminded that receiving God's word leads to life and to salvation, and that rejecting and opposing God's word leads to death and to judgment. And so we need to embrace the good news about Jesus, and then we need to allow the word of God to continue to be at work in our lives as, as we consistently receive it over and over again. And so this is a natural opportunity for us to ask ourselves, how do we relate to God's word? So you can ask yourself the question, 
do you receive God's word as it really is? Right? Have you responded to the gospel by, by turning from your sin and placing all of your faith in what Jesus has done to save you? Or are you somehow hoping to earn your salvation by becoming a better person or by doing nice things for other people or kicking that bad habit or going to church more often? The word of God is clear that there is no one who is righteous in of themselves and that the only way for us to be saved is to turn to Christ. Right? Receiving God's word begins with us turning to Christ for salvation. But then what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? Are you continuing to receive God's word as it really is or, or not? When we gather together for corporate worship every Sunday, as we open up the scriptures together, do you pay attention to, to find out what God would say to you through his word? Are, are you actively studying it so that you can understand and, and obey it in your life? Or are you, you, you tempted to, to tune out and to think about what you want to eat for lunch later on or which chores you have to get done later this afternoon? What about in our personal lives? Do, do we spend time throughout the week allowing God's word to mold and shape us as we study it? Or does our Bible just sit on the bookshelf until Sunday rolls back around again and we have to get it off to come to church because you don't want to come to church without your Bible? And church, if, if we truly believe that this is the word of God, then why would we give ourselves to anything other than consistently engaging with it? Right, if, if these words are inspired by the God of the universe, then there is simply no competition. There, there is no story that is more interesting. That there is no self-help approach that is more effective. There is no theory of, of pop psychology that is more transformative. There is no information more important for us to have in our day-to-day -day lives than what we find in the scriptures. As we seek to be disciples who make disciples, that process from start to finish is dependent on us receiving God's word as it really is. Being filled with God's word. So this morning, let's not drop the ball, so to speak. But let's commit ourselves to actively and consistently receiving God's word as it really is. Let's pray together.